0: Actually, tonight's chapter, I hope we can kind of move through its narrative. It will not be as interactive, probably, as the last few weeks have been. Last week was very interactive and actually was actually a great discussion. Um, And you guys know the rules to jump in whenever you feel like it. So we're going to pick up with the last part of chapter 20 and move into chapter 21 today. So let's dig right in to the end of chapter 20. Remember, the disciples and Jesus have just been traveling on the way to Jerusalem. This is the culmination of Matthew's storytelling. He's leading him to the Passion Week. And they have left Galilee, and they're on this road to Jerusalem. They were in Jericho when we saw the last parts of the text that we covered last week. And now we end with this as they're leaving Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. You can already see that this Son of David language is entering into the narrative that Matthew is telling, and it's going to become important today in our story as well. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. And Matthew closes chapter 20 in that way in his his discussion of showing that even as he's going towards Jerusalem, Jesus continues to heal along the way and to bring people in. Notice these people are healed and they follow as he continues his march towards Jerusalem. Starting in chapter 21, verses 1 and on to 5. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the mountain of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, Tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to the daughter of Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Imagine a scene just for a second. What's going on with Jesus? He's actually telling him to go and find the donkey and the colt because he knows the prophecy. Some people point at this and say, this is kind of Jesus pointing to himself. Maybe it's not just the fulfillment of a prophecy, but it's him putting himself in a place where he could say, I want to fulfill this prophecy or to point to myself that it's written about me and this is what's going to happen. So there are some scholars that when they look at this passage they say, hey, that's kind of cheating. Like Jesus knows the prophecy, so he goes and jumps in the scene to make the prophecy come true. But notice what's important to Matthew here is this strange little twist where they're just supposed to go and untie somebody's donkey and the colt by her, and no one is going to stop them and say, what are you doing? And if someone does do that, they're just supposed to say, the Lord needs them. And they'll say, oh, okay, that makes sense. There's always been speculation on why that would even occur. Would the person believe that the owner needs them? When you see the word Lord, we immediately associate God, but in that time it could mean something else, like the master needs them. Oh, it must be the owner of the donkey needs them. Okay? strange. But Matthew starts to insert more and more of these things because it's coming down to the point where Jesus is finally, after all the things that we've studied together, he's going to become less and less kind of hidden about the fact that he is the Messiah. He's been talking in parables. He's been telling his disciples not to tell people. But as his last week is approaching, he's going to kind of let it out faster and make it more clear to people what's going on. So he Matthew, of course, makes it a point to tie it back to a specific prophecy. That prophecy comes from Zechariah. And Zechariah 9.9 was understood by Jewish scholars to be a messianic prophecy. So Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy. Matthew is making sure to point out that Jesus is doing that. You can see the original text from Zechariah is quoted very close. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout. Shout. Daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then of course, if you take on the second verse after that, verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His ruler will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The reason I put up that verse 10 is because, again, you could say, well, in Zechariah they were just talking about some future king of Israel, but it's difficult to reconcile that when you say that he will rule from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. I mean, nobody in the history of Jewish rule at any point in Israel's history had anywhere near that kind of power. Even the greatest king of Israel did not rule from sea to sea or anywhere near the ends of the earth, so that's why it was understood as a future thing that was going to occur, and here Jesus is pointing to himself by linking his entrance on a donkey. He's actually linking in the second part as well, trying to say that I am that one who is to come. To Matthew, it's important that he make that connection and show us who Jesus is. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. You should stop right there and say in researching this, there appears to be a big debate. When it says Jesus sat on them, does it mean the coats or the two donkeys? (laughs) And people actually have said that's a crazy idea to think that Jesus sat on both of them. I just thought I'd point out that some scholars have nothing better to do than to debate that he sat on the coats or two donkeys. I think we get the idea that the them is probably the he sat on the cloaks. But you know, if you've got a lot of time and you want to write an article and make a name for yourself in an area that nobody has written much about, this could be your area if you want to be a scholar. very large crowds spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You know, we're so used to the image of Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday that we miss some of the things that are going on in just this small packet of verses that we looked at. So let's kind of look at it a little bit more carefully. So he's entering on a donkey and they're laying down coats. Most of us know that if you take off your cloak and lay it down, the symbolism there is of a conquering king, of somebody very important coming to claim the city. So already we see that the crowds are starting to misunderstand Jesus' message. I mean, even at the end, you could see that when they say, who is this? They say it's the prophet. So they're still thinking of Jesus in very messianic terms the way they're used to. They're not understanding what Jesus is driving to by the end of this week that is beginning on this Palm Sunday. But they are treating him in a way of at least some importance. There's, he's got some celebrity status and he's coming. He's coming. Now, the crowds that are likely coming in at the beginning of the week for the Passover are usually the Galilean crowd because they, like Jesus and his band of disciples, have to travel from the north to get down to Jerusalem. So most of the people who are following him are probably Galileans. In fact, the people who are welcoming him are probably the Galilean crowd. Not exclusively, but a large number of them must be there. That's why there's so many crowds in the city. And this might give you some indication of why it is that we sometimes wonder how did the crowds grow so fickle so quickly? How is it that on Sunday they're praising him and hailing him and by the end of the week we have a group of people who are shouting crucify him. In fact, five days later. So some people looking at this historically think it makes sense that the people who are following him into the city in this scene are the people who know him the most. If we look at the book of Matthew you'll see that most of it deals with Jesus in Galilee. And he's got quite a bit of his time and his teaching in Capernaum and up in the north. So maybe these people already know of his works. Maybe they've been following him, some of them making the same pilgrimage that he has. Remember, in this context, he's done some pretty amazing things before coming here. We see, like, for example, from other gospel accounts, that he's been doing some other healings, including the raising of Lazarus. So there's a lot of excitement. In fact, look at this word here. It says stirred. That's the word that we're looking at. So there's something going on. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Stirred is kind of a weak word. A a different translation would be like people were shaken. Not just shaken, not stirred. (laughs) They were were shaken. The, the The kind of imagery that's given is when people are this Greek word that we translate stirred in the NIV here, it's like the same kind of shaken that you are at an earthquake, like something big is going on. People are disturbed also by it. There's, There's like a buzz going through the crowds, but people are just kind of moved by what's happening. And that's why people are asking, who is this? And of course, if you say, like, somebody's asking, who is it? And the crowds are answering. That also gives us a clue that there might be two different crowds here. The people who are already in the Judean area in Jerusalem are like, who is this coming into the city? And the people traveling with him or the crowds that are welcoming him are turning around and saying, this is the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is Jesus. So that's kind of what's going on here. I also want to focus on the word Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. There's that son of David language again. Again, remember, David served as a prototype for the messianic hope. So people were expecting The son of David, to return in some way, it's significant that Matthew uses these words for the crowd, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna itself is a word that we sing, but we don't always really understand the meaning of it. Originally, the real original meaning was save us. It's a salvation word. But over time, because of its usage, it became a praise word. Like we say, Hosanna, in the highest. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Actually, that's a quotation from Psalm 118 the Hosanna and the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It entered the language of the Israelites. So in Hebrew, they would say Hosanna originally as save me, please. It was a, it was a begging type of salvation that you're looking for. But over time, it became kind of a blessing and a praise. You would say Hosanna, salvation has come. So salvation in the son of David, salvation has come from the highest is really part of it. It's not just the old type that was used where you say, save me. Now it's kind of connected to this blessing of he who comes in the name of the Lord. So a citation from Psalm 118. And you'll see that this whole chapter 21 in my mind is drenched with Psalm 118. It's like they had it in mind the whole time that Matthew is arranging his text for this part. Because there's constant references back to Psalm 118. All right, starting in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. The story moves right into it. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Let's end there. Anyone know who lives in Bethany? Bethany. Who lives in Bethany? Lazarus. Right, and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. So it seems that from other gospel accounts we have as well, that Jesus is going into the city and then going out of the city to spend time in Bethany, most likely at the house of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Okay, that's the ending part. This is an interesting thing that Matthew does, that Jesus goes straight to the temple. In other gospel accounts, I believe it's Mark's, he actually spends the night in Bethany before going to the temple the next day. So in Matthew's account, he cuts right to the chase. He doesn't give us the timeline of how it's exactly going. He has the, the entry into Jerusalem, and then he goes to the temple. All right. From the other account, we know that he had the, the entry, he probably spent the night, the next morning he went right to the temple. But here the important thing is Matthew's trying to get to the action. The action is people knew that the Messiah was going to come to the temple. That was part of the prophecy. So we always think of the idea of Jesus overturning the money tables for just a moment. But I think there's a beautiful image for us to keep in mind for a moment that here is Jesus, God incarnate, coming to his temple on earth. There's like a beauty in that. Now, we know from earlier that he was at the temple in Jerusalem at a younger age. But now, at the end of his ministry, he's coming to the temple. And there's a significance to that that's going to be played out in the next few verses about him coming to the temple. So he shows up, we know the story, and he starts to drive out the people. He quotes scripture again. My house is going to be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Most of us know the historical background, probably heard the story enough times to know that people were buying and selling sacrifices they could give away, whether it was a dove, especially for the poor. It's interesting that Matthew points out the doves and doesn't mention the other Animals. The poor people were allowed to buy doves if they couldn't buy the animals that were larger that they could sacrifice, so they were allowed to buy doves. But there seems to be evidence at that time that people were overcharging for the doves. So the people who could afford them the least were being overcharged. So there's an issue of justice here as the Lord comes to the temple and seems to focus on those, and Matthew seems to focus it on as well. Like that's the one he highlights the most. It's probably true that he probably overturned other things. Morgan.
1: Yeah, I think that's important because a lot of times, at least when I was growing up and you hear this story, um, for hundreds of years people have been selling in the temples. That was a very normal thing. So, but at least I feel like in Sunday school it's taught, well, nobody should have been selling stuff. They should have been praying, right? Like they take that verse and kind of, you know, do that where that's just it seems, like it seems to be what you just said, that idea of justice where there's unfair wages or there's some other things that maybe aren't exactly. Told to us why there's some serious injustice, and that's why Jesus does what He does, not just because oh, you're selling and you shouldn't have been. Like that time, that time on for
0: a long time. Yeah, if you go to a church that has like a coffee shop or something, I mean, this this verse is not justification for you to get like a big whip together and <laughs> walk in there and like turn them all out, right, and say my house is a house of prayer, not a house of caffeine or whatever, right? Like that kind of feeling which is where we spend, but in all likelihood what's going on here is probably year-round there were some people who were making available animals for sacrifice because, specifically, you probably didn't bring it with you. Some people did, but maybe you didn't. Around the time of the feast, especially around the time of the Passover, these people were probably like descending on the temple. There were probably more of them because the crowds were going to be bigger. And if you think of almost like a swap meet mentality, you're probably setting up booths and different things for a while, anticipating the greater crowds. That's why I think it is significant that he focuses on the doves, because those are the ones that were sold to poor people, especially because of their poverty. And again, the evidence is that seems like they were being taken advantage of. Jesus shows that this is not only wrong, but he acts upon it. And some people have said, is that a futile act? I mean, they're going to set up tomorrow. I mean, what, what does it really show? But I think it makes a statement about the practice itself. And Jesus is going to make other statements in his mind that indicate it's not going to matter that long anyway because this temple won't be here soon. And he makes a number of those statements throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. Notice here it also says the blind and the lame came at him in the temple and he was healing. You know, according to the Jewish interpretations, and even as far back as when David was setting up the idea of getting the temple, the blind and the lame weren't really allowed into the parts of the temple where Jesus was going. There was a separation to say that these people really don't belong in the house of the Lord. They might not be whole. They might be unclean. And Jesus not only encounters them, but heals in the temple. Another statement that we often miss when we just go, oh, there's this Jesus healing again. Now, in this specific case, he's actually making a point that even in the temple, as these people come in who maybe weren't welcome, he heals them anyway and makes another statement about his presence in the temple. And there we have the children saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, maybe the children are just like, this is so great. This guy came into town, and everybody started getting all crazy and singing this, so they just all started following him. So I don't know that we could make some big theological statement about the fact that children are praising his name. They just probably got in on the action because it was so exciting. But you can see that Jesus once again, it seems like almost the third time he's done this in just recent memory, he contrasts the religious leaders or even the disciples when he rebukes them earlier with the children and elevates and points to them as an example of what is good and contrasts that with the others. Okay? You see that the others were indignant and he replies to them, haven't you read from the lips of children and infants his ordained praise? So, those are his statements. Okay? Questions? Comments? Yeah.
2: Um, When people are upset about the children saying that, is it of any importance to them that it's children, or do you think that it's just that anyone is saying,
3: you know, Hosanna to the son of David?
0: Yeah, I think what they're trying to do is point to him, like, who got these kids saying this, right? And why would they be upset? First, because they're kids. We've, we've seen that theme already, that people just didn't really favor in having kids around. They were more troubled in that way. But also because they're trying to twist that a little bit into the, like, look what you've done. You've gotten even these kids to say this, like to be praising you. you know, If you said it straight, they'd be saying, you're encouraging them to blaspheme, if we really understand what's going on here. But notice Jesus didn't tell them to say that. But that's what's making them indignant. And so that's why he responds. You know, They come to him like, do you hear what these children are saying? Like, you're the cause of this. They're not saying like, hey, this is great. And you got the kids going. It's exactly the opposite. So they're actually saying you're tainting the kids with all this that you're doing. Now, he doesn't get arrested, which normally somebody doing something like this could have gotten arrested. The crowds are clearly still on his side at this point. Maybe some of them are secretly thinking, yeah, that was great what he did. We don't know. It's all speculation, but clearly, Things haven't shifted. This is probably going to be one of the things, though, I would say, that really adds to why the chief priests want to get rid of him. I mean, At this point, this is a pretty significant act. Look at Malachi 3. This is another prophecy that's being pointed to. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And that's the messianic hope that people had had of the Lord coming to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by and in former years. There's a lot to unpack in that, but I'll just point out a couple things. You can see it's about the Lord coming. It's not going to be just a day of excitement. It's actually a day of, that you're supposed to kind of be a little weary of because he's coming to purify That's what all that language is about refiner's fire and launderer's soap. He's coming to clean it out so that we can have the worship in righteousness, offerings in righteousness. Some people read into that a little bit more and say because the whole system is about to be done with, the whole temple system is being overthrown by Jesus, it's now going to be about righteousness. I don't go that far. I think the righteousness is significant because righteousness and justice are very connected in words. They're often used in parallel throughout Old Testament. So it is a concept of offering with a sense of justice surrounding it, which Jesus has just demonstrated acts of righteousness and justice and purification of his temple. So you see that kind of, that's where they were kind of doing it. And that's clearly some of the things that these people were thinking about as they were writing this. So Matthew probably has this in mind to make a point of why it's so important to put the story of Jesus going towards the temple and why the other gospel writers do as well. Story continues. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to the mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Let's just stop there for a moment because that's really clear. We won't really need to talk about it. (laughs)
1: Let's
0: start with the fig tree. You guys own your faith. This is like you're reading the scriptures on your own. I'm not here, just reading this. What would this mean if someone came up to you and says, hey, you know that part in Matthew 21 where he's talking about the fig tree, and then it didn't have any fruit, so he just says to it, like, may you never bear fruit again, and it just withers? Like, what, what's that all about? So, Mark, what's that all about? <laughs> no, no, like Exodus, we don't call on people. Mark? <laughs> Yeah.
2: On the surface, it kind of seems like a tantrum like, oh, wreck, there's nothing on this tree. Curse the tree. And then it dies.
0: That's what it looks like on its face, I man. Yeah, that's what it looks like. So that that's significant that Matthew would put that in there, I think, right? What do you think? Yeah.
2: Well, I've been told that the fig tree is a, a symbol of Israel, that and the vine. Those two are images of Israel. And so saying that there's no fruit is saying that it's kind of similar to when the um, the person for three years was trying to get this tree to bear fruit and it wasn't, and then the the master said, "Well, let's just cut it down." And then he said, "Well, one more year. Oh, well, the person will fertilize it and kind of get it get it going, and then and then if no fruit, then we'll cut it down." So this I think is referencing to that that Israel isn't bearing fruit like it should.
0: Okay. Right. Um.
2: Uh, the
1: first thing that makes me think of is like my faith like whether or not, like I think God that's why he would say it reminds me of another, another passage but I can't remember where it is but about like bearing fruit if we don't bear any fruit it's like God will cut us off
0: you're talking about John 15 which is like the vine like I am the true vine you're the branches right so my father will either do two things he'll either prune you or if you're, he'll cut you off if you have no fruit. We've talked about that in other contexts, so that's a great connection to make. That he is talking about the, and of course, those branches that are cut off are thrown on the fire, he says. Okay, so that's true. Philip? Okay,
3: one of the trouble with it is that it seems his reply to their question seems to give the impression that, like, the fig tree isn't symbolizing anything, it's like more using the fig tree to show what faith can do, like, which. Is problematic because if it is not symbolic, then it seems more like what Joe was saying. It's like he's just having a tantrum. Like we're like, which I think sort of makes sense. It's probably stressed, you know, like knowing his last week was live.
0: It does say he was hungry, right? <laughs> I know how cranky I get when I'm hungry. So. <laughs> haven't you ever gone to a restaurant like when you're really hungry and you're in the mood for that? You walk in and there's just like this huge line. And you just go, like, I'm never coming here again. And you walk out the door. All right, that's kind of what's going on here, except that after you walk out the door, like a meteor hits it, you know?
1: <laughs> I, think, I think we definitely have to see it in a prophetic act. You know, like, I mean, if you look at Elijah and Elisha and something like, it's just one of those strange things that you're like, what the heck is going on here? So I don't think he's hungry, you know, well, he's hungry, but I don't think he's just throwing a fit or, you know, like, it seems like down in the face, and that's why it's a great comment, because that's what people usually read, but you've got to kind of see it as, yeah, he's certainly doing something, whether it's symbolizing Israel or, or something else. Um, he's, you know, he's making a statement here and using it to teach
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I think that's right. I think what's going on here is it's connected immediately to what we've just seen in the temple. I mean, Matthew's arranging this to tell a story here, and they're on their way. Remember, Matthew doesn't always speak chronologically, so people have tried to figure out when exactly this happened. But it does say in the morning, but it doesn't say when. So in the morning, they're doing this. And Jason is right that throughout their knowledge of Scripture, like the vineyard and the fig tree represented Israel, especially when you're going to talk about fruit, which is what we're talking about here. So Jesus is making a statement that he has come to see the temple, to see Israel, all of it in its entirety. I mean, this is not just today, but in his ministry, and he's found that they are not bearing fruit. He's probably specifically thinking of the leadership, which he's going to be talking about for the next several verses as well. He's going to be continuing on this theme. So he's already had a run-in with the temple authorities. This probably fits right into that, because he's going to go right back into it with them shortly. So yes, it seems like it's a prophetic act. Yes, it seems like he's making a statement that if you're no good, you're going to be cut off. So Brian brings us right back to that John 15 passage. And that's part of Jesus' teaching as well, that he seems to point that out. It's interesting, though, that the disciples <laughs> are missing the prophetic point. They're just like, hey, how'd you do that? That's all they care about, right? So that, I think, Philip is on something that they focus right away on the ability to do that. You know, They're like, hey, prophetic or not, I want to know how you can do that. How is it that you can do that? And Jesus does respond with a verse that we've studied in depth, so I will not actually go into it too much because we'll be here again for a long period of time. But you know that in our series on prayer and the power of prayer, we spend a significant amount of time focusing on what is the power of prayer and what can you do and what are its limitations and what do you do with verses like the one that Jesus makes here where he says that if you have faith and do not doubt, you know, you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. So I'm going to refer you if you want to get into the issue of how much power do you have in prayer when you bring faith into it to that series. But I do want to comment on it from Matthew's perspective for a moment. Since we're in Matthew, let's read it in context. He responds with this, what some people could say is hyperbole, or at least an example of the power of prayer. Like, you're amazed that the tree could wither? I mean, the proverbial mountain could go into the sea if you had faith. That's one way to read it. Another way to read it is notice that he uses the word this mountain. Which mountain is he talking about? He's either looking at the Mount of Olives, or more likely he's on the Mount of Olives, probably looking and talking about this mountain being the mountain of Zion, which is where Jerusalem is built. So when we read, you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, we immediately think of a mountain uprooting and going into the water. But you have to read this from an Eastern perspective. Throw yourself into the sea has a specific meaning to them. It means destruction. To this day, you can hear people in Eastern countries like Iran say to places like Israel, like, we will throw you into the sea. Do they mean that they're literally going to toss them into the Mediterranean? it means that we will destroy you it's an eastern way of saying that that is be the end of you that we will drive you into the sea so in some some commentators point that he, what he's really saying is he's making another prophetic statement right on the heels of the first one that you can say to this mountain go throw yourself into the sea and he's predicting the future spiritual and physical destruction of jerusalem I think it's interesting. I think that's an interesting perspective. I think this mountain probably is either the Mount of Olives or Mount Zion, since those are probably the two prominent mountains right there. If you've ever been to Israel, you're standing on one or the other at most of the times when you're in that area. But I still think there's something to the idea of the power of prayer there about you can say this mountain and move, whether it literally means that people with faith can alter geography or he's making another statement to show that you can do even greater things than just tell this fig tree to wither. I actually would support that point and then refer you to our series on prayer. Yeah.
2: I
3: think it's interesting, Like uh, when I was in Egypt, a big part of the Egyptian Catholic church is
2: like based on this idea of that a lot of people prayed at one point to move a mountain, and they did. And so you'll find it in a lot of their imagery. like all around their churches and really beautiful pictures of it. But it's very interesting because they believe that this did happen when a
0: lot of them prayed. Yeah, in other expressions of Christianity around the globe, if we were studying this passage together, we would not even consider, like, does he really mean that it could move? Like, they would just believe this is exactly what he's saying. And there's been a lot of education, I think, that we need to gain from our brothers and sisters around the world who would look at us and think of us as the poorer for the fact that we don't really even believe in an expression of Christ's power in the world that would be able to do these kinds of things. Now, drop a footnote there. That's why you need to listen to our series because it doesn't mean you could do anything you want. And it doesn't mean you could bend the will of God. It means a lot of things are implied into this. If you read it with all the other statements about the power of prayer, that's why I say, check into that and, and wrestle with it as we did at length during that series. But I think it's still a powerful statement from Jesus that, you know, you could do greater things than tell this fig tree to wither. But I think you missed the whole point of why I told it to wither in the first place.
3: I understand that him withering the fig tree, like, that that can be symbolic for like Israel or for like not bearing fruit and throwing the fire. Um, but I, I feel like... We only reach that because we don't like what the obvious conclusion is. Like, there's no evidence in the passage, like, of what it's saying. Like, of what it seems right here, like, it seems that he was just hungry. It seems a little bit strange that he's frustrated. Like, we I mean, like, it seems that he's frustrated.
0: You know, we would look at this and say, "There's nowhere in this story that I could undersee where it says this is a prophetic act." I think that if you were reading it when Matthew first wrote his text, there's a lot of things that make sense to them that we now have to go back and recover. Like if you put this story, this is my hypothesis, I don't want to speak authoritatively, but this is my hypothesis. If you read this story right on the heels of the temple story, I would posit to you that as a first century Jew, they wouldn't need an explanation. They're like, so Matthew tells us a story of overturning the temples and making some big proclamation and more are coming. And then he walks by and he curses the fig tree, basically, and it withers. Like, we all know who the fig tree is. Oh, that's, that's big, right? And we'd be reading it going, who's the fig tree? I don't understand. But we're reading it 2,000 years later without that context in mind. That's my belief. By the way, that's not my only belief. I, commentators come to this position, and most of the people who look at it come to it exactly for that same reason, that to them it means something. To us, we're still struggling. And by the way, what would it mean if it was the other way? It would be a silly story to kind of put in. I mean, Jesus has done so many greater things than curse the fig tree. It would be kind of strange to think that Matthew thought it important enough in the midst of all these condemnations of the temple system to throw in that he just got mad because his lunch wasn't there. That, that to me would be against the very careful and deliberate Matthew that we've been reading.
2: And isn't it like bookended and it goes back to the temple again?
0: Yeah, we're going to go there right now. I mean... So that's why I'm saying it would be strange for Matthew, who's so deliberate about trying to build this story to throw in a strange thing. So let's go back to the temple, just like Brittany was saying. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? So they've clearly come to trap him at this point, to try to get him to say something. So he just turns it on his head. And the explanation of why that's turning it on his head is right in the text. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people. For they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Very clever exchange. Yes. Yeah, and there's a real honor
1: shame aspect here. You know, like they're trying to shame Jesus, and he basically turned it around so that he's in an honorable position because.
0: This kind of idea of standing up to challenge the teacher. Oh, this happens in here all the time. You guys don't even know understand. Like, like that's, that's the point of this group. But, but the idea in the first century of standing up to challenge the person, somebody was going to win and somebody was going to lose. And that was going to result in shame to the person who lost. You could see Jesus question a couple of times. Like when the person says, like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him, how do you see it? You respond first. Let's, let's go well, who is my neighbor? Like, there's a little bit of a, of a battle going on there to try to see if you can stump the other person. So here they're trying to do that, and he just turns it around, and they give a very weak answer. We don't know. I mean, clearly, they, it's one or the other. No, we don't really know. So he says, then neither will I tell you. Phil. Um,
3: would it have been, like, I understand him claiming he's the Messiah and he is God. Like, that would be like, blasphemous um, from their point of view. But if it... He was saying, like, I am doing these from the authority of God. Like, you can't you just, like, saying I'm a prophet. Like, I was like, not understanding, like, what they're trying to trap him into say. Like,
0: does that make sense? It does. And I, and I don't have a straight answer as to why if he just said, my authority comes from God, why that would be so bad. Because he's actually going to go on to now answer the question for them. He's going to answer it in different ways, indirectly. But he doesn't just come around and say it, although he will shortly. I mean, by the end of this week, he's going to make it unmistakably clear. But you're right. Why is it that it's a trap for him to say, like, what authority do these things under? I think it's because if, they, if he just comes right out and says, by the authority of God, they're going to claim he's a false prophet. They're going to, that's the only thing I could think of that they could drive to is that you claim to be a prophet and you're not. So he tells them this parable to kind of take it to the next level. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. There's the vineyard again. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness. And you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. He's actually given them their answer. By the fact that he says that he came by the way of righteousness, to show you the way of righteousness, he's already answered. I mean, who else was righteous but God? He's already told them by whose authority John is doing. So in this parable, he turns it around on them and says, so you know. Now, of course, who are they in the parable? They're the people that say we will do God's will. He's basically pointing to them and saying, you're like that first son. I'm sorry, you're like the second son who says, I will, sir, but he did not go. And there are the other people who have been disobedient but have changed, repented, come back, and did what it was we supposed to do. So he makes that contrast to them. Again, this indictment is thinly veiled. He's not really hiding this much more, but they're still playing these. You know, it's like they're they're jousting with words. Jason,
2: um, I think it's also significant how the second son responded. He said, "I will, sir." So he was very um, respectful in his words. He was saying, calling him sir, whereas the other one just said, "I will not." Um, he didn't even bother to show respect to his father. Um, and it kind of reminds me of where they call Jesus Master or Lord or Teacher, um, but they don't, they don't treat him, and we don't treat him as God.
0: This parable should also remind you of the Prodigal Son story. It's kind of almost like a miniaturized Prodigal Son version. Just, just point out, if you think about it, one did, one didn't. You know, it's a very quick summary of it. But clearly he's pointing at them. Push forward. Listen to another parable. This is a smackdown of parables for him. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. So it's a fully functioning vineyard. Then he rented a vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Now, this parable should not be hard to interpret at all. Again, when I say thinly veiled, I mean, now, like, the covers are coming off completely. He is pointing to them, and clearly, again, it's another master-leaves-people-behind parable, which Jesus loves to tell, and Matthew collects quite a few of them. So here you see that the vineyard is there, it's fully functioning, he gives it to certain people, it's representing Israel again. And the master sends for his portion of the rents, his part of the fruit, that was what he was supposed to get for giving them the land. While they worked it, they kept some, they gave some to the master who owned it. And these tenants seizing people, as you can see, when they beat one, kill another, stone a third, who are they talking about there? These are the prophets that have been sent to Israel over time. They've been sent over and over. And finally, he says, last of all, he sent his son to them. Now, Jesus has not really made a very public declaration of sonship. But in this parable, he's coming out very clearly to them. So like I said, he's not not mincing words anymore. The parables are becoming not as obscure as before. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, and of course he's speaking right to the tenants at this point, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Why take his inheritance? Reading into the parable and what a first century crowd would understand is that if the heir is coming, that must mean that the landlord himself is dead. He's not around. That's kind of the understanding of why he's sending the son. That's one way to read it. We kind of miss that, like the landlord's kind of just sitting at home going, Okay, uh, now you go. But they're thinking, like, if we kill the son, it's over, and we get everything to ourselves. And that's very significant for the people he's speaking to, who really seem to think of themselves as, basically put themselves in the position of lording over the people they were charged to minister to. So they kill him. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? That's a surprise twist in the story. We just read it because we know the story. The surprise twist is, No, the owner is still alive, and he's coming to reckon with the tenants. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, they being the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants, who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. So they get where the story's going. They know what's supposed to happen here. He's going to kick them out now. He's going to bring them to a wretched end. They killed his son. They killed his servants. They killed his messengers. And then he's going to find people who do deserve it. He's most likely speaking to the leaders of Israel. Some people have tried to make this that this is where Israel gets thrown out of God's grace and the Gentiles are brought in. But I don't think you can read that into this here. I think he's still talking to primarily, I mean, even at this point in time, Everybody involved in the story is still in Israel. I mean, Jesus is Jewish, the leaders are Jewish, his followers are Jewish, the early church is going to be Jewish, so I don't think that you can read that into it. But clearly what he's saying is, you people are going to be replaced. Now they've got a really good reason to kill him. You know, he's not even trying to be obscure about this. He's coming right out and saying it. Then Jesus said to them, Have you not read in the scriptures... The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That comes from Psalm 118 as well. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He's not in the parable anymore. Now he's just talking straight. So if there was any doubt in their mind what that parable meant, he's now explained it very clearly. He who falls on a stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. You think? They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds because the people held that he was a prophet we're probably still talking about mostly a Galilean crowd at this point. Maybe others are hearing about his wonderful things like raising Lazarus from the dead. Let's just end with this one little riddle me this that Jesus has. Yeah? Oh,
3: yeah, we were asking the last sentence, or the last sentence. The
0: he who falls? Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's riddle me this. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. I'll be honest with you. I looked for quite a while to get a great explanation from any commentator that I could get my hands on that had a really good, satisfying explanation for this. First, there's some early manuscripts that don't even have that verse, although the best manuscripts actually do include it. So there's some people just write it off that way. They go, well, we're not even sure that was in there. Like, that doesn't answer what it means if it was in there. And I've heard some explanations that say that there are going to be some people for whom Jesus is a stumbling block and it will, like, you know, like, think of a person tripping over it and they'll broken as opposed to a rock falling on you when you're totally crushed. And the difference between those is the stone being something you trip over is like somebody who has a problem or stumbles, like, over Christ and can't understand it, something like that. Whereas the second one refers to judgment, where, like, the stone actually crushes them completely. I don't really endorse that because I, I can't find a satisfying explanation, I'll be honest. I'll try to find a better one by next week. But I looked around, and some of the people that I respect the most in trying to really dig into what is Matthew saying by inserting this here and why is it in here uh, kind of punted, in my opinion. you know, Because it's a, it's, it's a difficult saying that I don't think has a great explanation.
2: So basically, is it better
0: to be broken into pieces or is it better to be crushed? I think it's better to be broken into pieces, I think. <laughs> I think. Uh, One guy said it's really just a repetition. Like the word but actually should be and. Like it's just like they're just saying the same thing in two different ways. All right, like the main point of course of all this is not who's broken and who's crushed. The main point is the very things that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the most important thing in the entire building, like the thing that nobody thought was of any value. Becomes the very thing that in the end holds it all together. And of course that's pointing to Jesus Himself and God exalting him because the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Yeah. Monique.
2: So we're talking about like Christ kind of becoming the new cornerstone of like the church or whatever, and how like the Pharisees basically the leaders and son, you're gonna be replaced, like you know, your time is over, my time has come, or whatever. How soon would that have been like? Evident is talking in the big picture, or like was there a fault to them actually soon? Or people be like, Oh, the shift has come. Would they have seen the shift in their own lifetime, like right after Christ's crucifixion? Because, like, because the Pharisees are are persecuting Christians like after Christ's death for a long time, so there's still some power like within like the Jewish church or whatever. So,
0: well, there is a theme going on here about the end of the temple system, but it's going to be worked out in a number of ways. First, you have it on a, this system of bringing sacrifices to God, and that being our connection and our place of repentance is about to be over. Within a few days, in fact, like within a week, the whole system is going to change. So Jesus is alluding to that in part, because, of course, their authority in there and their, all of that is going to be taken away. Of course, we also know that on the way into Jerusalem, Jesus makes the prophecy about the destruction of the temple, in numerous places, we know that within 40 years or so of of the resurrection, like we have that event taking place where the temple is destroyed, so now physically you can't even be there anymore. And in the interim, between the time that the resurrection is now the new covenant, right, that's the new thing that we're doing, the church is beginning, so it's going to be a gradual spread. I mean, clearly at the beginning, there's this tension between the Jewish Leaders who are still going, I mean, they're, they're not buying into the new system. They, don't, they probably just think it's a heresy or something, right? Where the church is starting to take off and is going in its own direction, but at some point the temple won't be there at all. And we know that historically then Judaism just spreads to become part of like the, you know, the whole synagogue system has to take off because people have to worship in their own local areas. And that greatly democratizes in some way uh, or at least has a different influence on Judaism from that point forward because no longer do you have this central authority system, which is really what was going on here. Do you
2: think that that's a connection they would have made or just coincidence, like it was destroyed, now we do this?
0: I don't think at this point they real. I mean, he's making a direct threat to them, but they're not going to understand the connection to the resurrection. They're not going to understand even that the temple will be destroyed. Like I, That's so out of their mind. However, if you understand when Matthew is writing, whether you believe he's writing before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD or shortly afterwards. I mean, even the latest dating is going to be somewhere within plus or minus 5 to 10 years of that event. So to them, that even means even more. Like, he's kind of reminding people that Jesus said these things. And, yeah, yeah they're either about to happen or they were happening. So, so his readers would be nodding their head, again, with an understanding that we have to go back and recover historically because it isn't just, oh, yeah, that's right, that's exactly what happened. Let me just close with this, just to show you, now that we've covered all these verses, listen to, listen to Psalm 118. Listen to it with the words that we've been studying. Just think about these words in your mind. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. Literally, Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is our God, and he has made his light shine upon us with boughs in hand, branches, Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. And that's why I said that chapter 21, in a way, is kind of drenched with Psalm 118. Clearly, Matthew had it in mind and was recalling it and bringing it in somehow that he saw that there was this connection the Hosanna, the blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord, the entrance through the gates the cornerstone, and the idea of salvation all being wrapped up into this monumental event that's happening as Christ enters Jerusalem. So let's close in prayer, and then we're going to actually sing the words to the stone that the builders rejected as kind of our response. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the chance that we have to just meet in this place and to hear from you through the reading of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the time that we have that you've set aside for us, the luxury that we have to spend time studying your word, the fact that we do not have to gather just to eat, the fact that we have been blessed with just enough provision to be able to do this because, Lord, it is something that we should not take for granted. Lord, thank you that we have copies of your scriptures. Thank you that we are able to do these things. Lord, bless us through the reading of your word. Remind us constantly that you come into the gates of Jerusalem on the way to the Passion so that you might become our salvation. And Lord, we thank you for that. Be with us tonight as we gather. Be in our conversations. And may we learn to love one another, not just in word but in deed. Pray this in your name. Amen.